Well, we are coming to a week. In fact, we're here. We're entering a week that comes once every four years. In fact, we've been in a period of weeks and months and years even that have been leading up to this week. And I know that many of you, most of you, probably all of you, have convictions, you have emotions, you have fears, you have opinions, you have predictions about this week and then the subsequent weeks, months, and years that are coming. And and as a result of this week and the election that has taken place this week, in January of 2021, our country will either retain its current president or our country will inaugurate a new president. And the prospect of one of those options greatly excites you, and the prospect of the other option greatly concerns you. And I I get that. I understand that. I understand your fears and concerns and opinions regarding both potential outcomes. But here's what I want to say to you as your pastor and as your brother. This week, in coming weeks, in coming months, whatever lies ahead, I want to urge you to fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on the one who paid it all, whom we just sang about. Fix your eyes on Jesus this week. In in your elation, if your candidate wins, remember that he cannot and will not ever deliver on all of his promises. He will never live up to your expectations. Fix your eyes on Jesus. In your despair and hopelessness for our country, if your candidate loses, remember He cannot and will not ever overthrow the kingdom of God and the rule of the Son, no matter how bad you think it's getting. This kingdom, our kingdom, as in God's kingdom, it cannot be shaken and it cannot ever be overthrown. And so just remember that this week. This isn't a sermon. This is just a word. This is an aside beforehand to fix your eyes on Jesus. And in fact, in my studying for our sermon this week, I came across a quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon, He's a, he's, a, he's a quotable, probably the most quotable pastor that, that's ever lived. And, and I came across this quote, and I'm just going to read it for you because I want you to hear it because I think it illustrates the challenges that we face regularly, but especially the challenges that we'll face in the coming weeks and months. And I think it's an illustration that, that will help us and encourage us to fix our eyes on Jesus. So here's what Spurgeon writes. He writes, quote, Sometimes our faith, like our sight, is not quite clear. You do not always see, I suppose, equally well. There are many things that affect the optic nerve, and we know that in fair weather, we can see a longer distance than we can in cloudy weather. Spurgeon continues, I was at Newcastle some time ago in a friend's house, and when I went up to the top window and I looked out, the friend said, this is a fine view, sir, if you could but see it. He continued, we can see Durham Cathedral from here on a Sunday. And Spurgeon says, on a Sunday, how is that? His friend continued, well, you see, see all that smoke down there, all those furnaces and so on. Well, well, they're all stopped on a Sunday. And then when the air is clear, we can see Durham Cathedral. And Spurgeon on that interaction says, we can see a great deal on a Sunday when the smoke of the world is gone for a little time. We can see all the way to heaven then. But sometimes... What with the smoke we make in business and the smoke the devil makes and the smoke that sin makes, we can scarcely see anything at all. 
Well, since the natural sight has to undergo variations, both from, within, both from itself within and from the smoke without and from the state of the weather, we must not wonder if our faith undergoes variations too. It ought not do so, but sometimes it does. And so I just, I want to say that there's gonna be a lot of smoke and you're gonna be tempted to, to lose the sight of Jesus. You're gonna be tempted to fix your gaze on something or someone else. And I just want to say, look through the smoke and fix your eyes on Jesus because Lord willing, we're gonna gather here again next week and the authority and rule of the Son will be no less than it is this week and no less than it is in the coming weeks. And so be encouraged. I wanna pray for us specifically in light of this that we've talked about and then uh, we will look at Hebrews chapter two. So let's, let's pray together. Father, we gather and we recognize your rule and your authority. You are God and there is, there's none other. And so we recognize that you raise up leaders, that you appoint kings and that you tear down leaders and you tear down kingdoms. And so we just, we just want to recognize that, that this nation, that America will not endure forever. We need to be reminded of that. It is temporary. We, we are thankful for this country and, and Lord, I ask that you would bless this nation but we remember as your people, we are citizens of another country. We are only wayfaring strangers on this earth and in this country. We're just passing through. And so I pray that you would align our hearts and our emotions and our thoughts with that country that we are longing for. Help us to long for that country that is to come. And so Lord, we pray for our next president. We pray for him. We pray that you would grant him wisdom. Lord, we pray that, that, that you would grant our nation peace. In the coming weeks and months, we pray that our nation would, would have a, a, an extra helping of understanding and kindness, of common grace. Lord, would you grant us those things? But most of all, Lord, I pray for this nation. Lord, I pray, I, I believe in line with the greatest need of this nation. I pray for fruitful ministry of, of local churches all over our land. Lord, we pray for the rapid spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this land. Lord, we pray for revival. We pray for revival that can't ever come through political office or legislation. We pray for revival that comes through the spread of the gospel, through the life-giving ministry of your spirit and the powerful message of Christ crucified and raised. And so we pray for revival that, that, that is only generated by that. And we pray that you would bring that about. And so I pray for your church at large, but I pray for Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. I pray for other sister churches here in Hampton and in our state. Now, Lord, would you sustain us by your grace? Would you, would you help us to hold fast to Christ and hold fast to the gospel of Christ? And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to consider him. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, I won't do that next week, right? We won't, won't be at the beginning of an election next week. Uh, but that truth, may we never grow tired of being reminded of that. Well, if you have your Bibles, do turn to Hebrews chapter two. We're going to be looking at verses five through nine. If you don't have a Bible, please let us know. We'd love to give you one. Uh, we're gonna be spending our time in these verses in the book of Hebrews. And so we're gonna read Hebrews two, verses five through nine. And, and before we do, let me just explain that, that we're coming up through a, a transition in the book. This is our fourth week in the, the letter to the Hebrews. And in, this ver, in these verses, this passage, the, the transition is we're gonna see a shift from the focus on the, the lofty or the exalted heavenly position of the sun. So that's where our author's been, right? The exaltation of the sun. And we're gonna see a transition from that to the humbled incarnate 
earthly ministry of the Son. That's where he's going, and we'll especially see this next week through the, the remainder of chapter two. But, but, but that's the transition from, from exaltation to, to humiliation or to incarnation. And to make this shift, the author has to convince us or show us why the Son, who became a man, who made this shift from, from heaven to earth, why he is superior to angels. And he has to do this because as he's shifting the focus to this earthly ministry, it's going to seem a little suspect for him to continue to affirm the superior, superiority of the Son over the angels. Because angels are different than humans. That's the natural way of things. And in fact, we tend to think, I would say quite naturally, that humans are inferior to angels. Angels are heavenly beings. They are of a different category. And there is a legitimate and a genuine inferiority of humanity to the heavenly beings. And so all that has to, has to show why this, 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 this eternal son who became a man is superior to angels, even though he is still fully man. That, that's the tension. That's what he has to work to convince us of. And so what we're going to see today in this passage is that the incarnation of the son changes the state of man, that the son becoming a man reveals God's plan, not only for mankind, but for the entire world, the cosmos. And the result of the son becoming a man and the subsequent suffering and death Right, is the subjection of all things to him. That's the result of his incarnation and his suffering and death, is the subjection of all things to him. Which means as a result of the incarnation, as a result of his suffering and death, the Son has been made supreme. The Son is supreme. Which means, and, and this is where author is going, his earthly ministry is essential to his superiority over the heavenly beings. His earthly ministry is essential to his superiority. So instead of taking away from the superiority to the angels, the earthly ministry of the Son actually solidifies his superiority over the angels and it guarantees his eternal rule over them. And so, so that's the main point of these verses, the supremacy of the Son. And to make that point, the author, there, there's simply two steps that he makes that we're going to look at. So the first point we'll look at, here's our outline. First, we'll see God's plan for man. And that's verses five through eight. God's plan for man which in these verses we'll see that God's plan for mankind from the beginning has included a rule and authority that was never given or intended to be given to angels, but for man, which is significant. And so step one is to elevate the role of man in God's plan, to show God's plan for man. But then second point we'll look at, verse nine, we'll see God's man and plan. That's the second point, God's man and plan, verse nine which after establishing the role of mankind in God's original plan, the author is going to show how the life, the earthly ministry of Jesus, actually accomplishes the plan that he has for man. And so the authority, the supremacy of the Son is accomplished through his suffering. And so what I'll argue is that even though what we see at this point is not the supreme Son ruling over all things, in our perception, the fact that he suffered and died and the fact that he rose again guarantees not only that he's conquered death for mankind, but also that he's redeemed mankind. He became like us so that he might save us. And so he's God's man, and that's, that's the plan for that. I, I sound a little bit like Dr. Seuss, but, but that's our outline. Um, so let me read the passage, and then we'll look at verses five through eight. So here's Hebrews 2, beginning in verse five. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are, we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere Quote, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. 
You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. End quote. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At the present, though, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Well, let me pray for us as we begin looking at this passage. Father, would you help, would you help us as your people to, to, to be edified and encouraged by this, your word, and the ministry of the eternal son who became the Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, so last week, so as we look here in verse five, last week, the first four verses of chapter two were, were a warning passage that were, that were a bit of a detour. And so the warning was, hey, pay attention to the message from the Son. Don't drift from it. And it highlighted the supremacy of the Son because the message from the Son was gonna have far greater consequences for those who, who drifted from it or who, who disobeyed it. And so it was a detour warning in verses one through four. And so here in verses five through nine, he's shifting back to the main argument here of the section, which is the comparison between Jesus and the angels. And again, his point is to show the superiority of the son over angels. And so look there at verse five. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking. And so as we read verse five in light of the context, we know what he means. He's not simply making a statement about the angels. He's making a point about the son. Right? That, that's in the context when he says it's not to angels he subjected the world to come. He's making the point it was to the son he subjected the world to come. That's his point. He's making a point about the son. That's why he uses the word for in verse five. It's a continuation. So if you skip over verses one through four of, of chapter two and you read the end of chapter one in light and continue on in verse five, it, it flows pretty naturally. And so the argument, listen, if I skip just the first four verses, the warning passage that's kind of an aside, chapter one ends, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are, are the angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking. Right? So, so that's the flow of logic. His, his point is that in this world to come, it's been subjected not to angels, but to the Son, Right, which is what he said in verse 13, isn't it? God says to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's language of subjection and rule and authority. And, and so the son is, is told, sit at my right hand, which is the position of authority and power until this happens. And so he's continuing that line of thought. But in order to make the, the point here in verse five, verses five through eight, he doesn't go to Psalm 110, which is where the, the sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. That's, that's Psalm 110 he's quoting in light of Jesus. Remember we talked about several weeks ago about how, how the, the, the author of Hebrews is reading the Old Testament in light of, of he has his Jesus glasses on. He goes to another Psalm that's not 110, but Psalm 8 to make a point that continues his argument about the superiority of the son. And that's why, that's why, we, had, that's why we read Psalm 8 earlier. So Psalm 8, you're probably familiar with it, but, but Psalm 8, as Will read it earlier, it highlights the role of man in God's plan. You don't have to turn there, but, but, but listen, I, I wanna read it again. We, we just read it, but, but just listen to how Psalm 8 describes the role of man in God's plan. It begins, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. 
And then verse three, when I look at your heavens, when I look at the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, when I, when I look around at this, this theater of your glory, verse four, I, I ask this question. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And so as we read Psalm eight, the clear point is the majesty of God, the glory of the Lord, that the heavens declare his glory and the psalmist can't believe that God would take thought of man. Man is so small, why would God? Who is man that you are mindful of him? He, he asked because he can't believe it. And the psalm continues, verse five, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And so the psalmist, as we read Psalm 8 in its context, he's amazed at the great gulf between man's insignificance and his lofty position as ruler over creation. So like, I, who am I that you're mindful of me? But more than that, you've, you've made us just a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with glory and honor because we're the, the pinnacle of your creation. You've given us dominion over all your works. That, that's what verses 6, 7, 8 of Psalm 8 make. That's the point they make. And as we, as, as, as we look at Psalm 8, we ought to immediately think about Genesis 1 and 2. Because humanity, the first man and the first woman, this is the crown of God's creative work in the beginning. The crown of creation, it's not the stars, it's not the universe, the waters or the seas, it's not the angels, it's not even the heavens. That's not the crown of creation. The crown of creation is the man and the woman. Genesis 126, let us make man in our image. That is not said of anything else in all creation. The image-bearing responsibility is given to the first man and the first woman. And part of that, that image-bearing responsibility includes the, the exercise of dominion, the ruling of creation. That, that's clear in, in the Genesis account. Genesis 128, you, you've heard this. You, you're familiar certainly with the first part, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We know that, but do you know how it continues? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on earth. Right? This is God's plan for man, to rule and reign over his creation. At the end of the creation of, of man, when the work is finished, the declaration is, it's very good. The Lord saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so that's the point of Psalm 8, the, the, the role of man in creation. And that's what the author of Hebrews quotes in verses six through eight of Hebrews two, our passage. It says, it wasn't to the angels that God subjected the world to come. It is written somewhere, right? I don't think he's forgotten. I don't think he's had a lapse of memory. I think, I think he's just either it's so well known that he doesn't have to tell him where it is or he's, he's intentionally even out because the focus isn't on who said it. The focus is on who God is and who man is in relationship to God. But he says, it wasn't to angels God subjected the world to come. Verse six of back in Hebrews two, it's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Right, that's right from Psalm eight. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And so that's, he, he uses Psalm eight in his argument to show the superiority of the son over angels. And so as he quotes Psalm 8, what this author is doing is he's, he's beginning to show his cards, or, or to put it another way, he's beginning to show how he's reading, continues to read the Old Testament, because he does so in light of Jesus. So he's reading Psalm 8, 
And, and he's, 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 he's addressing it or he's interpreting it and he's, he's teaching it in light of Jesus. So he sees this fulfilled in the person of the Son, in Jesus himself. Because if you read Psalm 8 in, 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 in its context, it's clearly a reference to mankind in general, but the author of Hebrews brings Psalm 8 into Hebrews 2, not because he wants us to know anything about mankind in general, but instead, the primary purpose for bringing Psalm 8 into Hebrews 2 is so that we might know something about Jesus. And he wants us to know, what he wants us to know about Jesus is that he is the man, right? So, so Jesus is the man. Can I get an Amen. Right? So Jesus, that's what he wants. He wants us to know that Jesus is the man. That Jesus is the one in whom God's plan for man in general is fully realized. Now this will become more clear in coming weeks, hopefully, but, but we can simply recognize that God's plan for man, the plan for humanity to rule and reign over God's creation was not accomplished by the first man and the first woman. Right? They, they failed, I mean, they couldn't rule over even one little serpent, much less the entire world. So they failed, right? That was their job, and they failed miserably. And sin enters the world through this failure of the first man. And with sin comes death, creation falls, humanity falls, and the result is chaos, and so the result of man's inability to exercise dominion, to, to rule well, the result is chaos and brokenness in a fallen world. Which, by the way, maybe, maybe this is a, a necessary point of application. I don't think it is, but, but that's still the case here today. We live in a world that is filled with chaos that is broken. This world is not as it ought to be. We see rebellion. We see creation reeling and whirling. It is not right. It is wrong. But that doesn't change God's plan for mankind. It doesn't alter the place of humanity in God's design. The fall doesn't change man as the image bearer in God's plan, as the one through whom this world is going to be ruled. So, so sin affects it, but it doesn't displace the role of humanity. In, in fact, the fact that sin entered the world and has wreaked havoc doesn't fundamentally change God's ultimate design for his image bearers. And so here's the problem, verse 8 of Hebrews 2, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And so in light of the reality that, that this world has fallen, in light of what we see, it's clear that everything is not in subjection to man as Psalm 8 says. Yeah, that's not the way it is, right? Man is not ruling and reigning, right? There's chaos. We can't even rule ourselves, much less this world. And so, and so that's, that's the... That's the objection or the issue that the author anticipates here. So look how verse eight continues. Now, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control, right? So he's not backing down, but he's not gonna double down, but he's gonna explain at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. And he's okay with that tension with, he, he has everything under his feet, but, but we don't yet see everything under his feet. That's the tension there. But, but here's the problem that, that the author has to address. If God gave dominion to man and man failed to exercise it and now we don't see it, what is left to do? Right? The only thing that I can see is that assume, we can assume that God's plan for man has been thwarted, that, that God's plan, not only for man, but for this whole world has been knocked off course. Right? So, so he, chose, he chose wrongly in creating Adam. He should have created someone else. He failed. Right? Mankind has not come through. Game over. 
scrap, start again. Right? That, that, that might be the only solution, it seems. It's, it's failed. But this is where the Christocentric perspective of the author of Hebrews comes in. That's why he brings in Psalm 8. This is why he's been ambiguous throughout these verses with the pronoun him. So some commentators say, well, who's the him? He's talking about both. He's talking about mankind in general and Jesus. And, and to some extent that's true, but I think he's mainly talking about Jesus, but he's intentionally ambiguous. Did you notice? Listen to, to how he uses him. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've put everything in subjection under his feet. Now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. You left nothing outside of his control. At the present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. And so he gets to the end of quoting Psalm 8 in Hebrews 2 and we say, well, who is him? Of course it's not true of Adam, but, but if it's true of Jesus, we, we don't see it either. Who's the him? And so the author of Hebrews knows that if the him is Adam, if the him is mankind in general, then the him is insufficient and inferior and incapable of ruling according to God's plan. It's not man as in Adam. It's not mankind in general to whom the world is subjected. That's not his argument. That ship sailed in Genesis 3. And so the man here, from start to finish, is the man Jesus Christ. Because that's who, that's who Hebrews has been focusing on thus far, the eternal son who became the son. He is the one. He is the one who, who our author is going to explain redeems man. He is the one who is the solution, the one who accomplishes or fulfills God's, man for plan, God's plan for man. He had to become a man to redeem man. And that's his point. The solution is the man, Jesus Christ, the eternal son who became the son, the messianic son. And as such, he is the one to whom the world has been subjected. He's the one who's been crowned with honor and glory. He is the one, he is the one, as, as you might say, is the second Adam, the better Adam, the true Israel. Jesus comes as a true human, the perfect man. He is God's man for the plan. And that's why verse nine is gonna lay out God's man in the plan. So look there at verse nine. Having just said, we don't see everything in subjection to him. Having just established, we don't see the world in subjection to man or in subjection to, to Christ. We have to recognize the emphasis, I think, here is on, on see. Now, we don't see it. He, think here and now. We don't see it. This world is, is reeling. It, it, it's longing. It's eager for a plan to be fulfilled. And so we don't see God's plan actually fulfilled or fully realized. That's true. But instead of despairing, the, off, the author of Hebrews offers great hope. And the hope comes from focusing not on what we don't see, right? not on the smoke that causes us to doubt what's true. Instead, the author focuses on who we do see. And that's what he says in verse 9. At the present, we don't see everything in subjection to him, verse 9, but we see him, namely Jesus. Maybe your translation says, but we see Jesus. We see, that the author wants us to know that we see Jesus. And the author wants us to know these specific things about Jesus. Notice how he continues. We see him, namely Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And we've heard that before, haven't we? But this is the one we see. This is Jesus. This is, this is him applying Psalm 8 to Jesus. We see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. 
so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So this is the author of Hebrews interpreting Psalm 8 in light of Jesus, understanding Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 8, of the, as the second Adam, the one who didn't fail. So the author of Hebrews recognizes the fulfillment of Psalm 8 in the incarnation and the exaltation of Jesus the Son. And so notice, notice I, I mean, there's three things from verse 9 that I think we, we ought to recognize. I mean, notice first, we see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Right? This is true of Jesus in the incarnation. He became for a little while, but he became lower than the angels, which, which, which validates the fact that, that it is true that humans are lower than angels. He became for a little while lower than angels. He became an actual human. He became a man, his incarnation. In his incarnation, Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. But, and this has been the point of, of Hebrews thus far, he isn't lower than the angels anymore. He's, he's not still incarnate on, on carrying out an earthly ministry. His point has been that the son, the one who became a man, is superior. The son has been highly exalted. The son has been given a place of authority at the right hand of the father. So the son isn't lower than the angels anymore. It was for a little while. So, so we ought to just recognize that. He was made for a little while lower than angels. That's his incarnation. But the second thing to notice from verse 9 is the reason that he's crowned with honor and glory. Not to notice, don't, don't miss the reason that he's been exalted. It isn't the result of the created order. That's not the point, right? That's the point in Psalm 8. You, you've, you've, played, you've crowned him with honor and glory. That's not the point in Hebrews 2. Why is he crowned with honor and glory according to Hebrews 2.9? The author of Hebrews describes Christ as the fulfillment of Psalm 8, and as he does, he introduces, this was God's plan for redemption. He introduces the man that God appointed for the accomplishment of salvation, and he introduces the means of accomplishing that plan, which verse 9 tells us is the suffering of death. So do you see why he's crowned with glory and honor? So look at ver so ver up at verse 8, at the present we'll see everything in subjection to him, verse 9, but we see him, who, namely Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than, than angels, and we see him how? Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That's the reason we see him crowned with honor and glory. This goes beyond what Psalm 8 originally meant. Whereas in Psalm 8, the crowning with honor and glory is the result of being the pinnacle of creation. Here, the crowning glory, crowning with honor and glory is the result of suffering and dying. And so it's because of the suffering of death that Jesus is crowned with honor and glory. Again, the, the, this redundancy is, is intended. The suffering of death is the cause for the crowning with honor and glory. In, in other words, Jesus has a position of honor and glory because he suffered and died that he didn't have before he suffered and died. The eternal son became the messianic son and now as the Messiah has been crowned with honor and glory in a way that he would not have been crowned with apart from his incarnation. The superior position of the son that, that is, the son occupies a superior position. That the place he now occupies, sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He, this is chapter one, having become much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. That authority does not come unless the son suffers. The, the exaltation required humiliation. This is why the eternal son became the son. This is why the second person of the Trinity humbled himself and became a man. This is why the word became flesh. This is 
this trajectory is God's plan for humanity and the way has been paved by the Son. And this is God's plan for man and he sent his Son. The eternal Son became a man. I mean, this, this, is, this is the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2. I mean, listen to the trajectory, the, the high to low to high. This, this is the trajectory that the Son traveled. This is Philippians 2. Paul writes, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on humanity, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Right? So, so there, there, there's the humiliation. He humbled himself, it goes further, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so, so there is the humiliation, death on a cross, exposed, embarrassed, mocked. Therefore, verse nine, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, human name Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the trajectory. That's Philippians 2, and that's Hebrews 2, using Psalm 8. The suffering of Jesus was not a sign of his inferiority or his defeat. Instead, it was the very means of his exaltation and victory. It was the plan and Jesus comes as the one who fulfills God's plan and redeems humanity. And it's his suffering of death. And then the third thing to note from verse nine is that his death is God's grace made manifest for all people. I mean, that, that's a powerful phrase that ends verse nine. We, we, don't, he, we see him for a little while as made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with honor and glory because of suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, we're not gonna go into much detail here because the much larger argument of Hebrews as it unfolds will center on the suffering of Christ, especially next week we'll see that as a high priest, as a better sacrifice, as, as his human ministry. So we'll, we'll spend more time on that in the coming weeks and months. But, but the logic here, Jesus became a man and suffered and died in order to taste death for everyone is a result of God, God's grace enables him to taste death for everyone or he tastes death so that by God's grace, everyone might benefit. And now some people will take this verse, they might taste death for everyone. And some people will understand this one verse to say, well, well this, this teaches a universalism. They will say, well, well, Jesus tasted death for everyone, which is meant, people will say that Jesus died in the same way for everyone, which means they go further that no one will ever suffer and die because Jesus suffered and died for everyone. That's universalism. That, that's not true. That's unbiblical. That will send everyone to hell, right? That, that's not true. But, but that seems, at least at first glance, that's what he's saying. He tasted death for everyone. Now, that's not what this verse means. Now, for one, it doesn't mean that because it's dangerous to build an entire theology off of one verse, so, so, so for this one verse where it's like, well, what does that mean? There, there are dozens of other verses that clearly teach that those who refuse to repent and believe the gospel will suffer and die eternally. So, so that, that is without question that you may not like that, but you can't question that is what the Bible teaches. And, and so if you're here and you think, well, if I just think rightly, if I, if I, if I, just, if I just think Jesus was a good guy um, and I try and follow his teachings, and then I'll be good. No, if you just try and be a good guy and you just have, think good things about Jesus, you're gonna suffer and die eternally, right? You must repent and believe the gospel. You must put your faith in Jesus. That, that's required. That's not what the verse means because that's one verse. But, but second, 
The reason that's not what the verse means, because in light of the context, it doesn't make sense. What it means that Jesus tasted death for everyone is simply this. So when he used the words tasted, it's not like, you know, for us, maybe if you're sitting at the dinner table, we get some food that looks a little, little sketchy. Some of the kid, our kids do this. It's like, oof, I don't want to have that. And so you taste it. You say, I'm just going to get a little bit of it and see how it is. That, that's not the tasting here that he's referring to. That's, that's not the idea conveyed. The tasting here is a, a full experience of it. Jesus tasted death. He experienced it. He really died. And so he tasted death for everyone. Here's the logic. The eternal son humbled himself, became a man, and suffered death in order that he might taste death for everyone. And as a result of his suffering, he now has dominion and authority over all things. So that's the flow. But the point here is that he became a man in order to taste death for everyone, namely every man. Humanity. He became a man so that he could taste death for man. He didn't become an angel. He didn't, he didn't become an angel to save the angels. He didn't become an animal to save the an animals. He didn't become anything else in all of creation because he didn't die for any other thing in all creation. He became a man and he suffered and died so that by the grace of God, he might save any man. That's just why he tasted death for everyone. There's no one who is outside of the saving power of Jesus Christ. The death he tasted and experienced is for anyone. No one, you sitting here, you are not excluded from the power of Jesus to save you. The death he tasted and experienced can be applied to you. All you have to do is, is, is repent of sins and put your faith in him. He tasted death for everyone so that he might save anyone. And that's the point here. And if you're a believer, is this not the grace of God that Jesus tasted death for you? I mean, I can't wait next week. Right? He delivered those who are lifelong slaves to death and the one who has power of death and he released us from that. He tasted death so that you might be, that is the grace of God. Jesus identified with humanity in order to save humanity. Jesus became a man to save man. And so in his incarnation, in his glorification, Jesus has fulfilled the destiny of all mankind. He has established the rightful place of man as the one to whom the world is subject. And so he, Jesus, he's raised, he's not dead anymore, but he is still as human as he was when he was on the earth. He, he doesn't cease to be human. He is the God-man ruling and reigning. He has all authority. And he rules and reigns now, and there's a day coming when we will see the full, complete reign, the realized reign of this one. But, but he rules and he reigns now. And so, and so that, that's, that's the point here. I, I just want to end on this note that the, the son of man rules and he reigns. And so Jesus, as the son, the supreme son, he gives us hope. He gives us stability. He gives us a city that will never be shaken. He gives us a promise of a rule and a reign and a coming rule of reign that will be complete and total. And so the son is supreme and he suffered and died so that we might join him in his rule. And that's our hope. That that is, that is the kingdom fully realized, us reigning with our elder brother, all because of what he's done for us. And so Christ is our hope. And so let us fix our eyes on the son, the supreme son who is the sure and steady anchor for us. Let, let's pray together.